We're in Daniel 7, and uh, just in a very brief review, we've looked at three things that we see in Daniel very clearly. And uh, one of them, an eternal kingdom. Everlasting. Everlasting kingdom. Everlasting righteousness. And then an everlasting life. We see that these phrases actually occur in Daniel uh, 7, 9, and 12. But the idea is that we've been looking at the last three weeks, uh, last two weeks, I guess, we've looked at Daniel's chapters 1 through 3 and then, and then 4 through 6, and we see how these ideas are very clearly shown. And uh, the, there seems to be an underlying conflict which we see throughout the issue. It's the very, the very passage that start out in Daniel with the situation being that the things of God, the, the implements and and uh, things that were in the temple of God are now under the control of a foreign atheistic power, okay? And they're using them in a way that they are exalting themselves above God, and they're using them in their pride to extol themselves in their own victory. And, and, and yet it looks as if everything is, un- all, it looks as if everything is lost for the, for, the, for the church in a very sad position. But yet God uses Daniel over and over again to show that he is establishing an everlasting kingdom. Do you remember the, remember the, the, the events in chapter uh, 1 where we have the, the story of, of everlasting righteousness that Daniel has? Uh, you know, this sense of how he was gifted in wisdom and knowledge and, and he knew what was right and he, and he, and he, and he trusted in what God, did God to do what's right. And he trusted that, uh, and, and, and as a result of that, his wisdom and understanding was evidently seen. He, he was not, he didn't give in to the, to, the foreign ways of, of doing things. Uh, and then he had, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in his second year, and, and um, we, we see this dream of, of uh, you know, of Nebuchadnezzar coming through, uh, ultimately, and him being humbled, and, um, uh, uh, being uh, thrown away, out of the land for a while, but yet he comes back. And, and again, we see the sense of an everlasting kingdom uh, that is uh, rising up there as a result. And then in chapter 3, we see the image of God uh, that they have to worship, and Daniel refuses to give in to false worship. Uh, and he continues to pray and keep his attitude towards God in heaven and, and in prayer. And so he, he looks for eternal life, and yet they, you know, and so as a result of this, uh, you know, fiery trial, they're cast in, in the fiery furnace, and uh, the, the fire was so hot it killed the people that were there, and yet Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and sees that there are four men, that, that there's Christ with them, and Christ restores them, brings them out. Uh, so, you know, we have, uh, and, and again, it's sort of interesting, the words there, you know, verse, chapter 3, verse 8, therefore at the time, Certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, "O king, live forever." Okay, there's this context of the the secular humanism's idea of living together versus the true, genuine, eternal life that's possible 
in, in, in being a Christian and being part of God's covenant faith. So you have these three ideas uh, that show up very clearly there in, a, in an eternal righteousness, an eternal kingdom, and eternal life. And you see the same three ideas again in chapter 4. There's an emphasis on the eternal kingdom here. And actually the words show up in chapter 4, verse 3. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. You know, and so we have this situation where, uh, and in verse, uh, and in verse uh, 17, the decision by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in heaven and the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever it will and sets it over to the lowest of men. These are the, this is actually the conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar came to. And, uh, and, and so uh, we, we have that situation very clearly of his humiliation um, uh, and, and his restoration to power. Uh, we have Nebuchadnezzar praising God when he comes to under, understanding of the right way, the Most High. And again, we 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 looked at the, you know, like in verses uh, twenty four there in in chapter uh, in chapter I think chapter I thought it was in chapter hang on here chapter chapter four verses twenty four you have the Most High, and in verses. Uh, uh, 25, you have the word most high, and again, you see that same uh, phrase showing up again in, in a double repetition in verses uh, uh, 32, etc. And, and then that sort of frames the story and, 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 and the key idea here. And as much as, and as much as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you. After you come to know that heaven's rule, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sin and be righteous, okay? So, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, perhaps there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, so in, in each of these things, as we looked in chapters 4, 5, and 6, you have, you know, you can think of this as the way prophecy goes. Some, an idea sort of introduced, and then you have, it continues to run over and over again. So, it's like the horses in Revelation. They, they're introduced, but they continue to run throughout all of Revelation. So these ideas continue to run, uh, you know, of, of, of in, in each one of these, even though this was mainly about the eternal kingdom, it, it has an idea here about the eternal righteousness and, uh, you know, the everlasting dominion and kingdom. They're, they're all present there. And, um, and so, uh, and in chapter 5, we have the situation where the Belshazzar saw a feast, the writing on the wall, and, and again that sort of a righteousness. So Belshazzar was weighed in the balance and found wanting, you know. And again, you have even the three words on the wall, you know, uh, really kind of uh, kind of convey that. Um, you know, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. So you know, uh, His kingdom, His you know, His life, His kingdom, however you want to look at that, is gone. He's been weighed in the balance. His righteousness is not there. Your kingdom has been this 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 divided and given to the mercy of his life, his kingdom. Is, he basically lost his life that very night. So so you have these same ideas coming to coming being worked out in the civil world. As God God establishes gospel, what you have is you have the civil authority, the civil state coming to confront a temporal fading existence thinking that it's the greatest thing in the world and finding that it's not. And in chapter 6, you have the plot against Daniel, the lion's den, and again, you have uh, eternal life held forth. 
And Daniel said unto the king, O king, live forever. May God and his angels, uh, and, and shut the lion's mouth so that they may not hurt me. And uh, I was found innocent before him. So you have, again, the ideas of righteousness, the idea of eternal life. For he is, and then in verse uh, 26, he is a living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. So he's a living God. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. You, you, you can't get, you can't just, you can't, you know, you can say one idea goes to one of these things and or not, but, but nonetheless, they're there. And the reason for this in verse 23, because he believed in his God. So, so you have you have very almost you almost have a summary of the gospel just really just sort of exuding off the pages here as Daniel witnesses to the civil authority and and the purpose in doing this was as I said before to understand how we are to behave in a situation where uh, we're in a civil authority which is totally secular total secular humanism totally against the things of God how are we to behave we're to behave like Daniel uh, that that's our example. Uh, of, of how we're to respond, and, and yet God blessed him. He didn't. He did not. As I said before, his attitude wasn't one of well. Oh, they got these. They got these things. Of, they've got these great precious things that God had in His temple, and you know, and they're abusing him. And he didn't write a diatribe, and he didn't, you know, uh, attack the king over all of this. I mean, you know, those things. God's going to bring about the victory. He didn't have to do that. I'm not going to say those things are wrong. But what he did was he focused on being a Christian. The hardest thing in the world to do is to be a Christian, okay? And he focused on worshiping God, not letting things interfere with that, trusting that God would bring about the victory because he knew and he had a real sense of it. And it exudes from these things. There is an everlasting kingdom. Uh, this battle with the civil state versus the, sec the church, the church is an eternal kingdom versus a temporal kingdom that passes away. We just need to keep our context and Daniel had these three focal concepts clearly in mind. There is eternal life. There, there is a life after, after this world that, that's very important. It, it is important to be righteous, and that righteousness can only be found in God. God alone is the true template of righteousness. There is an everlasting kingdom, and, and, and you can't separate these two. You can't, can't have two without three. You've got to have all three of them together. So, so anyway, I see this as uh, playing it out, but let's go to chapter 7 and... Daniel chapter seven. It's about prophecy, and 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 again, we're gonna we're gonna kind of do this in three lessons: seven and nine and twelve, and, and we're gonna kind of cover the chapters around it as we go. These are the main points. We could spend a lifetime in this, and not my intention. My intention to survey through this and get the main points down. Vision of the four beasts. And the first year, chapter 7, and the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and the visions in his head while in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds were stirring in the great sea, and the four great beasts come out of the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, 
when they had eagle wings and watched till his wings had been plucked off. And I was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had four wings, which had, which on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and the dominion was given to it. And this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It was huge from its teeth. It was devouring, breaking into pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from the other beasts that were before him. And it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking with pompous words. And this, and then it gets into this another vision, the vision of the Ancient of Days. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments were white as snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool, like a throne was a fiery flame. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the papa's words, which the little horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. I repeat, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, uh, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed, i.e. an everlasting kingdom. And then we get into the interpretation of this vision. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, in my spirit, in my spirit within my body. And the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever, i.e. an everlasting kingdom. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nail of bronze, and it, which devoured, broke into pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was great, greater than his other fellows. I was watching. 
and, and, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And he said, A fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it to pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and, an, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and a time and a half a time. But the courts shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness and the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So I have an awful lot here, and, and again, the two principal chapters that you that you can pivot prophecy and understand revelation of what this means around are chapter seven and nine. Chapter nine is more specific, perhaps with time references, has more implications to the fall of Jerusalem. Not, I don't believe exclusively, but certainly they're there. Whereas this is is more generic, uh, and 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 again, I see this one. As, is not the main topic. What's the main topic? Can anybody tell me, is there a main topic here other than the establishment of an everlasting kingdom? Isn't that the topic? Isn't that, the, isn't that what this is about? Isn't that what, when Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar the dream of the statue and, and how, you know, a small rock was broken away and that rock became a huge mountain and, you know, the kingdom of Christ was foretold there. Isn't this the same Kingdom isn't this a story of how the kingdom of Christ is going, and isn't the main story? This kingdom of Christ is going to overcome the kingdom of this world. Now, help me out here. Okay, if anybody wants to put it in a simpler frame than that, give it. Please give it a try. What is the main story here? Well, he identifies four kingdoms. He does. Okay. Okay. This chapter always reminds me of the hymn, uh, Christ shall have dominion. I don't know if yep. that's the name of the hymn, but that line, Christ shall have yep, dominion yep, yep. over land and sea, earth's remotest regions, shall his empire be like that. Amen. That's the uh, Amen. conquest of Christ over all others. Amen. So, you know, so, uh, you know, so, so, you know, I just have to work backwards, you know, to understand a topic, we have to understand what the main idea is. We have to understand what the subject is. Who is he talking about here? Is, is this topic limited to the people of Judah? Is this topic limited? Is there any reference here that this is limited only to the Jews and it only has application to Jerusalem or the Jews? I don't see it if it is there. You might could argue there's some in chapter 9, but I don't see any here. Uh, this is, you know, and who are the saints of the Most High? You know? I think, you know, this is what we could, I could spend a whole day getting into the different ways of interpretation of this. I'm going to stick with a couple, I'm going to stick with three 
that I consider to be maybe close to the mark. One is John Calvin. One is E.J. Young, who's one of the greatest, uh, uh, what I would consider, uh, evangelical commentaries, or reformed evangelical commentaries of Scripture, of Daniel. And uh, uh, Montgomery Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce. And so we could argue somebody says, well, James Montgomery was ultimately a, 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 a basically a premillennial. He was perhaps, but, but an historical one, not a dispensational one. None of these men are dispensational. Uh, I've also read uh, Ken Gentry's uh, book on, uh, as a section on Daniel, mainly about chapter 9 in Daniel. We'll get more into that next week. But there, there is a tendency of some to, to limit the Old Testament Scripture to the Jews. This is the, this, when it talks about the end of the age over and over and over again, there are some that argue that, that the end of the age is only about the Jews and this is a new age. Well, there's certainly, you know, there is truth in that. But, you know, but I would argue this, that there's also truth in the fact that how do you describe something? Can I draw something that's eternal? That's infinite? How long would I have to keep going in both directions? Forever. How, how, why did I pick that width? How, how, how wide would it have to go if it was infinite? We can't understand infinite. We can't stand everlasting. We, can't, we cannot understand, excuse me, infinite, everlasting, get our mind right. But we know what the idea is. We know what it's not. It's, we know it's not this stuff out here. We know it's not our life. We see ourselves aging, okay? We're heading towards the grave. We see the, the destruction tendencies in the world. We know where we're heading as a world and the people. We know we can get that. We know there must be something eternal. And I would argue that, that when we try to look at eternal, and when all of these commentaries try to read, oh, I, I see this mainly. I think, I think it's about that. Or I think it's about that. Okay? Yeah, they're right. But my answer is very simple. It's, it's an about, what's the subject? The subject is an eternal kingdom. It's something we can't get our mind around. It's both, to me, it covers not just the coming of Christ, but he talks about this kingdom of Christ that comes and it has some of the same language of all the knowledge and every knee shall bow. That was written after Christ died, okay? That was, that was talking about this new era we're in now, okay? All of that is a subject, in my mind, of this topic. And, and, and I'm not saying it's wrong to try to focus it on, I think it's mainly about this or mainly about that. That's good, okay? A lot of the dispensationalists go completely off the rail. You know, they say, well, we, we're going to move all this out you know, 2,000 years in the future. And, you know, there was a parenthesis. And this 70 years, we're getting to 70 years next week, okay? But they, they want to put all, you know, and that's, maybe there's some truth to that. But I'm just reading it very plainly and simply. I, I just contend, very plain and simple, the subject is an eternal kingdom, that, and, and that Christ's kingdom will have dominion over the earth, and every knee will bow, and that dominion will be complete, and the victory will be total, and it may not happen in a, in a point in time. There may be evidences of it in points in time, but it's ultimately talking about the, the history until the end of the world. Okay. Can anybody refute my, my hypothesis? Please, please do so. Please argue with me. Okay. <laughs> well, let me, get, let me go through the commentary. Let's, let's add, a little, add a little meat here. Okay. Uh, we, we've looked at this. And, 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 and again, I believe that Daniel is about, you know, that, that this chapter 7 is a prophecy about the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ 
There's nothing in chapter 7 about the fall of Jerusalem. We'll pick that up again in chapter 9. I'll talk about it again. But that may be a point on the may be a, may be a point on the map here. But that's not principally what this is about. That is simply not principally what that's about. It, it, this is about a broader topic. And and so, okay, we get into 7, 1 through 8. We have the four beasts. And again, almost all commentaries. There, there's one school of thought that sees these as the last one being Greece. That's a minor school of thought. By, by and far, almost all Reformed commentaries see this as four empires. And one of them being Babylonian. The second one being the Medo-Persian Empire, which came in with Darius. And and, and you know and and then, and then and then the uh, uh, Greek Empire. I should have had. I got. I'm missing one here on my list here. And then the Roman Empire. And and the fourth empire is the Roman Empire. And uh, you know and and, and 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 so the beast here is not Judah. Okay, it's not it's not the Jews. Okay, the beast is a kingdom. Okay. And, and that kingdom is most likely, most commentators, Calvin, all, all three of these guys I mentioned, okay, and, and, and even, even, the, even the predators, they, they, this is their four kingdoms, and the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. There is some controversy, and now again, when, when we see this language here of kings and kingdoms, if we, if we notice how this is introduced, Song, uh, the four great beasts. Okay. The first was like somewhere it mentions the word king here, uh, and then it, then it qualifies them as kingdom kingdoms. Have to, I don't write down. I didn't write down the verses I've got here. Is there any place? In verse seventeen. Okay, in verse seventeen. Okay. Four kingdoms. Okay. So so for somebody to argue that this is talking about literal kings. It's kind of well, you know, it, the words kind of go back and forth between them. Maybe, maybe they are. Calvin, now again, a lot of the preterists who see the fall of Jerusalem argue that these ten kings are actually ten people in line, okay? And actually, in order to do the math there, they have to combine several of them together. And that, and that Titus is the one that destroys it, okay? And so I, I, I don't follow that school of thought. Calvin believes that, that these kings were, you know, that talks about the, the emperor and, 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 and that progression, that, the, that he actually sees the Caesars, uh, not just a Caesar, but the whole reign of Caesars. Once the, you know, if you, I'm not going to get into Roman history here, but there were Caesars who became who put themselves up, and there was a time of republic, and ultimately they were given the authority to kind of rule as emperors. Okay, he sees that whole era of Caesars as the ones who were this little horn. Okay, and and he argues that very persifically. Okay, so I'm not going to say he's wrong there, but our E.J. Young sees this as the Antichrist, okay, the persecution of the saints. I happen to have that view. I think that is true. I think the Montgomery Boyce sees it that way. I think the Westminster Confession of Faith, which originally had the words of the Pope being the Antichrist, saw it that way, even though those words are no longer in our Confession of Faith. That reflects a mentality around the era of the Reformation which saw a great conflict with Catholicism, where Catholicism was basically killing people, okay? Protestants were subject to death if, the, if their king was a, was a Catholic because he'd wipe them all out, saw over and over and over again in history. Asked the, ask the Huguenots, asked the English people under Queen Mary what was happening. Was this like a friendly coexistence? No, they were determined to wipe them out. This was war. That's their environment they knew of. They saw this struggle being taken place before their very eyes. 
They saw themselves in Scripture. And, and so uh, we could argue. And, and I'm, I'm not, I don't, I, I one time thought, but I don't, think, I don't think the Antichrist is exclusively the Catholic Church. I, that's not my position, okay? I can see how you can get there. Uh, but I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's right. I think largely, I think it is all powers that are under Satan's control, okay? Particularly those in the church, okay? So I have a pretty broad definition of the Antichrist, all right? Very broad, okay? And because, you know, and again, I get it, that's another day and another day. I don't have time to get into all that here today. But, but uh, so again, there's, there's a different understanding of that. And, and, and in my sense, if you look at this as eternity, I think he's talking about, about an, an after, an, a beast and an afterchrist that will be here for a very long time until the world comes to an end and Jesus Christ comes back. In my mind, that's how I read it, more consistent with the idea of eternal kingdom. Okay, I see no landmarks here other than maybe you could pull in the Caesars by way of those horns and all that. Maybe you could bring in the mark there, but there's just not a lot of landmarks here. That would, that would, to me, most of the landmarks are eternal, everlasting, Infinite. The end of time. This struggle is going to be ongoing. Who, who are the saints that are being persecuted? Okay, now, did the, did the Roman emperor persecute the saints? Well, I guess there were some Christians in Jerusalem, so in a way, he persecuted them. But is that the... That the I, don't, I don't get it. I just don't get that whole line of thinking. I look at this as the persecution that we're enduring today. I see this relevant to us just as it was to Christians then, just as it was to Christians in the Reformation. This is speaking about a struggle that is ongoing that won't end until Christ comes back again, ultimately. And it's Yet the, the answer is already settled. When Christ died and, and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the, the victory was won. Okay, So the issue isn't over the victory. The issue is in the unfolding and realization of this thing that's taking place in time infinitely. And, and to me, that's perfectly logical. I, I don't see any... I think to try to pull it down into something else is taking the infinite into the concrete, and, and I don't see much basis. Yes, there's some landmarks. Yes, there's some times. But this little, this, little, this, little, this little horn by itself is so different than the others. I mean, it, it has eyes and talks and blasphemy. And, and so, you know, it, 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 and we can get into, you know, when we see this little horn kind of referred to again and again. Now, there's also a little horn referred to in chapter 8. We will not have time today to get into chapter 8. We will not have time to, other than just in general. Chapter 8 is more focused on the Greek uh, Antichias who, who offered, uh, became an abomination, who persecuted the Jews before Christ came. Almost all the commentators I mentioned see chapter 8 not referring to this eternal kingdom, but referring to some events that prophesy the ultimate coming of the Messiah when there was an abomination uh, where there were sacrifices of pigs and other things on the altar uh, to kind of, uh, when the Greeks were in control, the Seleucid Empire was in control, and you had the back of Maccabees and the great, great period of revolution there before Christ came again. They all see that. as the, And again, the he-goat, the references in chapter 8 are more related to the second, third kingdom there, the, the he-goat, whatever, the, the, the Greeks, and there were four, you know, the references of Greek. When, when, when Alexander died, it divided into four kingdoms. And one of them was in Egypt, one of them was in Syria, etc. And the Seleucid Empire was there, and it was very prominent in, in the area of Judea. And, and so, you know, it, it, all the time, all, all the people I mentioned, they all agree on chapter 8 being more focused temporally 
more specifically on a period of time to, to give warning and to give an insight into things that must take place before this Christ comes. Whereas chapter 7 is infinite, everlasting, eternal dominion. It's a totally different subject. Um, so, so, you know, so they have different, different opinions here, okay? And, but both of them oppose the idea that these are both Calvin and Young, and, and I would include Montgomery Boyce there as well, oppose the idea that these are three literal kings, okay? They just don't get that at all. all right, so I don't get it either, so I'm with them. The vision of the second coming, okay? Oh, but by the way, I don't want to get lost in all. Let me let's go to Revelation here in a minute. I, I believe that when you when you look at Revelation, and again, we don't have time to go through Revelation as a whole, but I believe you can divide Revelation into these same themes: an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting righteousness, and an everlasting life. And I believe the three struggles are the, are these three struggles being unfolded. And again, they aren't. They, yes, there are historical context to them, but they're over and over again. This struggle, like for example, chapter six, the seal. The, you know, he saw the saw the horseman coming out. You know, and and how there was great persecution. You know, the white horse, probably the gospel going forth, and then the black horse and the red horse, the persecution of the saints, and ultimately you have have the idea of the sixth seal, this cosmic disturbance of the world being upside down, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men. And the mighty men hid themselves in the caves and rocks of the earth and the mountains. Of, and, and, and again, that ultimately will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. But there's a real sense in which that describes prophetically how God is, how Jesus Christ is overtaking, how through the gospel, the kingdoms of the world are being overthrown and brought into the kingdom of Christ. Right, that's the message there. And notice in chapter 7. You, do you remember what it talked about in our chapter? It talked about the wind, chapter 7 of Revelation. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding forth the four winds of the earth. And it talked about the four winds of the earth in, in Daniel, in the chapter we just read. And the wind could not blow in the earth and the sea and on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice at four angels, and granted them to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, okay so again, is, and so there's a certain number and it talks about this, the number of tribes of Judah. Then it gets into a multitude beyond number. It talks about a great tribulation. Again, from my viewpoint, I see all of that talking about the things that are happening to this great tribulation. We're in the tribulation today. We're, we are, we're in this suffering from, from in this kingdom between the first and second coming of Christ. I see that as a tribulation. I do not see the tribulation as something that specifically was happening, completely uh, 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 vindicated and completed by the Jews in, in, in Jerusalem. Most of the Christians had already left, okay? I just don't get it, all right? Now, we, we get, nobody wants to argue that. The Sunday school's here. The Bible's our guide, and please explain that to me from the Bible. But I just don't get it. I see it more along the lines of E.J. Young. You know, uh, you know, in the sense of uh, Calvin and, and in the sense of uh, Montgomery Boyce and most reformers, uh, again, our confessional framework sort of gives this idea of we're in a continual struggle until Christ comes again. Did we not talk about how the world is not right? Okay, there's something not that that victory is not yet won, yet we know Christ will ultimately win. Okay, so I'll move on here. Mr. Ed, yes, um, we were in Revelation and I was. Jumped ahead there too. In Revelation 13, 
John describes, I'll just read verse 1. Uh, I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and his horns ten crowns, and on his head blasphemous names. It's a, almost identical exactly. to Daniel. Exactly. So, and the, the numerology there, I mean, we don't, as Reformed folks, we, we tend to be very skittish on numerology, but four and ten are very important numbers. Amen. Amen. Because they represent earth. Right. Right. So we have the four corners of the earth. That's the right. the Bible mentions four in reference to the earth is typically talking about the extent of the of earth. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then in ten, when it's referring to ten in reference to kingdoms, it typically is talking about the completion or the power of an earthly king or yeah. an earthly dominion. I mean, yes. So both of those beasts are representing yeah. types of kingdoms. Yeah that appear to have complete dominion over the entire earth. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that, as Christians, we, we know Christ reigns over the earth. Mm-hmm. And we are waiting for Christ's dominion to, to overcome these beasts. Yeah. But we also equally see and experience what appears to be their total dominion. Our enemies totally yes, yeah. over the earth. Says that, but it says that we're united. Right, yeah. right, right. So there's a sense that I, I agree. There's between Daniel and Revelation, this the story that or the message that's being told to us is it appears that these beasts are all powerful. Yes. It appears that they have dominion over the whole earth. Yes, yes. Yet there is an everlasting kingdom right. that is going to bring an end yes. to these kingdoms. Yes. And even though they're pompous, blasphemous, right. Because um, then Daniel right. uses the word pompous, but it's the same, the idea, same idea as blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, something that would speak against the dominion of Christ. Right. It's the same type of beast. It's the right. same type of enemy that we have. So, right. yeah, Daniel is a, a talking about a different God or a different faith or a different. He's continuing. John picks that up. Yep. John is purposely echoing. Amen. Daniel. Amen. I agree, and so so the, it, it, when you get the prophecy and revelation and all this, we can have our theories, but let's don't miss the main idea. The main idea is that Christ has won the victory, and we're watching it unfold before our very eyes until the end of time. Right, we know we know how this battle will end, okay? And and that's what you get in Daniel. That's what you get in Revelation. And again, I, I'm not going to belabor the argument very much, but I see the 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 seals, okay, or the horses going forth as the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom being established. I see the trumpets warning of threats to the understanding of the righteousness of God. I went to Catholic Church. I mean, I took at that in the sense as an example of that, but I see it over and over again. Their trumpets are warning us of, 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 of attacks upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and, and, and trying to come up with ideas and theories that put our own secular righteousness ahead of that. This, the final bowls of God's wrath are, are, in my mind, a struggle for this. The church tries to understand, what is this eternal life? What does it really mean to be saved? I don't think we've quite come to grips with that yet. To me, I think that's the last great theological struggle. I think we're in it today. And God will be victorious. He's going to pour His wrath out. He will, he will, he will bend the victory. The church will be purified as time goes on. So I see it as a... Yes, yeah. If you look at it from the temporal worldview, uh, you know that's what you know. This post-millennial view that was common in the Reformation is so lost today because it looks so negative. You could say, well, what, what? You know, look at Calvin. Why do they have this optimism? 
Look at how bad things are getting. What we're missing is this thing is so infinite we can't even see it. It's beyond our comprehension. Okay. Let me move on. Verse 7 through 9. This vision uh, you know, of the coming uh, second coming, okay, and that's what voice is word for it, but I, 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 I don't, I don't want to limit it to that. Let me say that I believe it is the vision of Christ coming. I'm going to revise my note there. I don't think that's accurate. Are you talking about verse 13? Yeah, well, I'm not there yet. Ver, verse 9 through 10, okay, a vision. I forget, but 10 will have it there. You have sort of this echo there. We said verse 9, thrones cast down the appearance of the ancient of days, Oh, you know, and again, that could be about the second coming. I, I can sort of see that. I can sort of see thousands before him, the streams of fire, the judgment, the books are open, and set. Now, those word books have opened. Okay, books are open. Calvin saw that as the gospel was opened and it went out to the world. E.J. Young sees that. No, this is talking about the final judgment. Boyce sees this is talking about the final judgment. The books are open. That's the, 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 the story's over. You can't do anything anymore. The, the, this is the end, okay? Now, I could argue that maybe it's both because this is an eternal kingdom. It's talking about events that are taking place that we can't, you know, we try to bring it down to an individual event. You can say, is this about the second coming? Is this about the first coming? I go back to the main point. This is an everlasting kingdom. Our human limited mind can't, can't reduce that down to what we try to reduce it down to one of these versus the other. I think we, you know, there, there is some sense where it may be more one than the other, but to say it's exclusively one and not the other, I think, I think we're wrong. I think we're getting off base there. Okay, verses 7, 11 through 12. We have a glimpse of the period between the first and second coming in my mind in verses 11 through 12. We have, and I watched then because of the sounds of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives are prolonged for a season of time. Okay, to me, I, I see that, and I think E.J. Young and uh, uh, would, would also see it that way, and, and I, I don't know that Calvin would disagree with that. Uh, you know that there there is a there is a, a period of time here where there's a binding of Satan uh, at the ascension of Jesus Christ. This has elements of both the first and second coming. This is a period between them. In verses thirteen through fourteen, again, uh, my, I'm gonna come back to my answer, the same answer. But let me start with the first coming, the ascension of Christ. There's a lot here that speaks of the ascension of Christ. Okay. And note, this is the focus of his dominion. Calvin is very much looking at this. Calvin looks at this exclusively about, maybe not exclusively, but mainly principally about the ascension of Jesus Christ, the coming before the Father. Uh, you know, he, this, Christ, where is he coming? He's coming to the Father, okay? He's not coming to the world on the second coming. And, and Calvin makes a very strong point there. Uh, E.J. Young, uh, e. Young and Boyce also see this as reflective of the second coming. Uh, Boyce in his New Testament comment refers to Daniel 7 and he says, okay, he goes to the New Testament and shows how these ideas are cited in the New Testament for Christ's preexistence, that he must suffer in John, that the persons, uh, that we must be linked to him to be saved, that Daniel speaks of the son of man's role in the final judgment, okay, every knee shall bow. So, so essentially what the commentators that see this is the second you know, So you can argue either one of them. You could argue this is the, this has a lot, it has sounds a lot like the ascension into heaven. But there's also an echo in my mind. I don't think you can rule out some meaning and an echo or extension to that. So if I had to pin it down, 
I'd say maybe maybe principally realized at the at the first coming at the ascension. But isn't that what we're isn't that how is isn't but but it's still fighting with struggle still going on. It isn't completed then. There's something in time that hasn't fully happened yet. So you can't say that it's over at that time. So that that's where the struggle and tension has to be kept. In my mind, the right view is the subject. This is an eternal kingdom. It's not, you know, yes, it's taking place in time, but don't get hung up on it's either this or it's that. So that's where I'm coming out. Sorry. Mr. Yeah. Two things just popped on to my head when reading through this again is I think the second, I'll start with the second thing and then I'll point to the first. The second thing, there is not a one-to-one ratio between what happens in heaven and the time that corresponds on earth. Mm-hmm. And we know this to be true because the Bible tells us this over and over. Peter says a day for God is like a thousand years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the book of Revelation, you have the the seals, mm-hmm. those are things that happen in heaven. And you have the trumpets, those are things that happen in earth or right. in response to what has mm-hmm. happened in heaven. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what happens on earth corresponds with what happens in heaven. Okay. So there's a sense in which to try to, you know, connect the timeline from heaven right. to earth is impossible. Yeah. Because we don't know, right. The, right. we don't know the ratio, right. right? We don't know the corresponding right. math to get. Right. So there's that. The first thing then that makes me think of is the use, Daniel's use of the prophetic perfect. Okay. And Could you explain where, that? Yeah, so the prophets, so oftentimes you see in prophecy, the prophet, the speaker, like Daniel, using words, saying things as if they've already happened. It's perfect. It's completed. But what that is, is he is operating by the power of the Holy Spirit in, he is participating in that, that completed work, right? He's seeing it as it's happened. And he's describing it as it's complete. But that doesn't mean that it's happened or it's complete. He's being brought forward, if you will, in time as a prophet by the power of the Holy Spirit to see these things completed. And then he's describing them as completed. But that doesn't have any bearing on the actual outflowing of time that it takes for those things to be completed. So we have to remember that when we're reading prophecy. Just because it's described as complete doesn't mean that it has actually been complete. So there's a sense in which if we, like verse 13, I think, I agree with you, Mr. Ed, I think maybe primarily this is talking about the ascension and assumption of Christ to the Father. And for me, it's because of the Son of Man language. So this is the incarnate Son of God coming to the Father, being enthroned, being seated at the right hand of the Father, and then his kingdom is... You know, going forward, so there's a sense in which it's that, but that his being seated isn't the end, right? right it's right. barely the beginning, right? Right. Of what's to come. It's still, and that's right here. There's some things that are still right, going right. On. right. But so we read it as if it's completed, right? Almost as if it's all bounded. Then he was right. given dominion and glory right. and a kingdom, right. right? And we read that and go, okay, so now this is all you know, one event. But in reality, this is just. God condescending to us in a way that we yes. can comprehend. Well put, well put, well <laughs> you know? put. We get our mind. Because we only can think of one thing that we've right, got to right, get our right. mind it's around. Like, in order to understand something, we've got yeah, to, yeah. We got to break it down. If Daniel were to write, right. you know, this is all eternal, and you know, we would go, I don't even know what right. that means, right? But, yeah, so there's a sense in which it has been completed because right. it's it's God's decree. It's as sure as done. Amen. But 
there's also the reality that it's still working out in time. So Christ is seated. He has dominion. He has a kingdom. Right. But that's not a past event. Right. That's something that we're currently participating in. And when we, and when we think how hopeless it is today, think how hopeless it was in Daniel's time. Okay? Their whole kingdom had been destroyed. The temple had gone. The people were in captivity. The treasures of God were probably worse than we were. There was no, there was no church next to the corner. It was really dismal time. So it can't be any worse. Let me, let me throw one other, one other data point here. Go to Revelation 1-7. Now I repeat, this, do you, do you, does everybody in here agree with me that Revelation was written after the ascension of Jesus Christ? Okay, we could argue when it's written, but, but it was written after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Read Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Okay? That doesn't give the context of where he's coming or all of that. I agree with that. And every eye will see him, and then they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, says the Lord. He who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here you have an eternal kingdom, and whatever you take Revelation to be, it's after the ascension, you have this idea of coming in clouds, okay, which is associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ, all right, but it's also associated with his ascension because he went up into clouds, and, and so I'm going to argue that hey, there there is there, you know, we can't we can't to, to pull this thing down and say it's one and not the other is a little wrong line. It may be principally here more, maybe in Daniel, it's maybe more about the ascension and. Pointing, pointing, looking forward. Because look at from Daniel's viewpoint. If you try to look at a, a train coming at you miles away, it's just like a dot. Okay, all the, the length of the train collapses into a point. Okay, and, and so he's talking about from a perspective. Look now, from our perspective, we see the train sort of at an angle here. I'm not sure whether most of the train has already passed or not, but we see we can see we can see it from a different perspective. But but nonetheless, you, you have Revelation that's here. And, uh, you know, can you take that revelation? Can anybody take chapter Revelation 1-7 and say that's about the fall of Jerusalem? I cannot get my mind around that. I simply cannot. That is about the second coming of Jesus Christ, period. Okay. Well, heretics can. Oh, heretics, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. I agree with you. This, this, is, this, this is about the coming of Jesus. Now, you could say... It, well, but you could say, well, that, that language is about what well, the ascension has already happened. It cannot logically be the ascension. It has to be some other coming of Christ, you know, and it has to do with our salvation very clearly laid out here. And every knee shall bow, which ain't happening today, I'm afraid, okay? Uh, you know, and, and, and the final victory is there. So that's sort of foretold. So, so I, we, we've got to kind of not get hung up on the clouds. Oh, coming at the clouds, they mean this thing. They, they mean this. Okay, is my argument. It's like the fiddle on the roof. You, you know, he was talking to the, he was talking, you're right, you're right, you're, you're all right. Okay, the, the answer is you're all right. Okay, there's some truth in all of these ideas, but none of them in, in themselves are the whole truth. Okay, uh, let me get back to my notes here. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, I've already kind of gone through the verse 15 through 29, more details between the first and the second coming when the gathering, the saints are gaining dominion and destroying the beast. The saints only fully possess the kingdom at the end. It's sort of how, if I were to summarize that, the 15 through 20, it sort of explains the vision interpreted. Okay, we have the trampling of the feet. Now, maybe there's some sense in which that could be applied more specifically to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I, but it talks about 
until the ancient of days come and the judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Well, in a sense, we possess the kingdom with Jesus Christ. So there's a real sense in which this took place at the ascension of Jesus Christ, but there's also a real sense in which it hasn't been completed yet. So I'll leave it at that. I see it as the time between them. I see the struggle is ongoing. I, I, I don't. I think trying to pull the beast into something to do with the fall of Jerusalem is, is wrong-minded. Okay, and, and again, I don't have time to do this. I probably can pick this up next week. But the view of chapter 7 speaks, uh, you know, very simply uh, of the coming of both the first, in my mind, both the first and second coming. It's like Daniel looking ahead. He sees a train coming. All he sees is a dot. He sees them both collapse together. And maybe he can kind of move his head to the left a little bit and see a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's what we're seeing. Okay. Very briefly go over this in the time I've got left, and we'll pick it up next week. But in Daniel 7 through 9, you know, that, that I think that's about the second coming. You know, terms like the books were open. In my mind, I see it that way. I don't agree with Calvin that that's about the gospel. In no sense, maybe it was, but not principally. Daniel seven thirteen through 14, uh, watching it and not coming in the cloud, uh, uh, Daniel seven thirteen. It is likely the ascension. Okay, we get into all of that, but the, but and, and, and you could argue that that's related to that. But it's also about the second coming. Daniel fifteen through twenty nine is about the the beast and the argument there. And I don't have time to get through all the horns and the beast again, but to sort of give you an outline here, you can look at that. Verse seven twenty seven. Speak of the saints as being given an everlasting kingdom and full dominion. That is that is undergoing before our very eyes. Okay. If you had to be, if you had to say, has it happened yet? No, it ain't happened yet. Fully and of complete sense, but the victory is ours, yes. This can only be Christ as he's fully realized at the second coming and future millennial reign. Matthew 24 is not entirely about the fall of Jerusalem. I'll go through these arguments. I'll pick this up next week, and I've kind of got them outlined there. And then chapter 8, we don't have time to get into. That's more about the Antiochus uh, Antithicus. Antithicus, okay. Uh, who was a, a, a Seleucid leader who persecuted the Jews during that time. So any, any time we got left over in our short comment, commentary for discussion, it's open for discussion here. We'll pick this up next week and try to move on tonight. I was reading this week, last week, whenever I was reading it, uh, Apollo Robinson's Christ and Covenant was through it in one of our classes, but anyway... Uh, rightly so, where we need to live our lives as Christians as if Christ is, is going to return at any moment, because the earth is always ready for the return of its of the Savior, right? But also, and I think this is where you were pointing to when you were talking about the optimism, now we're in the pessimism, this is one of the things that dispensationalism has disavowed us of as Christians, I think, is joy. Hmm. Because... The Bible does tell us to live our lives as if the Lord is going to return, the Master is going to come back and find us. We want, we want to be a found doing. But he's still, 
working out the salvation that he's accomplished, right? So we are, every day, we are more and more victorious than we were the day before. I mean, you can compare us to any point in Christian history. And I mean, us as the global church, we are in a better position than we were in Daniel's time. We're in a better position than we were in Calvin's time. We're in a better, I mean, we are. Yeah. It's objectively true. Yeah, there are more true. and more Christians. Right. Christ right. is conquering. Right. So we should be optimistic, right? Because right. let's just say, maybe he's wrong, but let's just say, oh, Palmer Robertson's anywhere close to being right on that promise of Abraham timeline. Again, we still got thousands, tens of thousands yeah. of years before yeah. us. Right. So, yeah, we don't need to be so pessimistic about well, this government's controlling us, and this is, you know, well, yeah. But, but likewise, the corollary is the Lord could do it all tomorrow. Yeah, okay. exactly. Completely. There's, this, there's this tension that we're in as Christians where, yeah, we're we're ripe for the picking. We're always to live that way, but the Lord could tarry much, much longer. Any other comments? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for this eternal kingdom which was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ, his active and passive obedience, which makes possible our salvation and depending upon his righteousness and not ours, but also makes possible our life in him as children of God. Lord, we thank you for this eternal life where we're connected to Jesus Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit and the triune God is working a work within us and in this world before our very eyes. Lord, remind us, even when the most dreadful things that could happen to us occur, Lord, that everything you do is wondrous, even though to us it appears to be an absolute disaster. In your world and your view, Lord, it will work out for your glory in some way we don't understand. Give us that mindset, Lord, that all things work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.